Father, it's a joy to remind ourselves of these most amazing realities, the, the truths, the wonders of Christmas, and the wonderful theology that is texted in these hymns. Father, thank you for the joy of being part of your church. Thank you for the privilege of having Bibles. And as we study together now, would you renew and refresh us, I pray, through the wonderful stories of Christmas. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you don't have your Christmas shopping finished up yet, you're going to thank me because I have just the item for you. Uh, I suspect that you missed it. It's not very well marketed yet, but it is up and running. It, it looks like this, and it, it is designed. Am I talking really loud now? Um, it's, it's, there we go. It's designed uh, to rise in the morning and put on the, the Knowing God's Will headset. This is the PR356 model, you know. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will then direct your path. So once you put on the headset, you start your day, uh, God just directs you. You know, he'll tell you, you know, go, go left here. And no, don't have another cookie. And God just tells you throughout the day what his will is and it guides and directs you. It's a great deal. I've been telling everybody in the other services that this model, the PR356 model, runs for 199 but after this service, I will sell it for 159 at a discount. Um, but um, it's really not true, is it? It, it doesn't work that way. Um, how many of you, though, if you could wear a headset throughout the day and God would just tell you what to do all day long, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you love that? Well, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. And today, as we continue our Christmas series on the stories of Christmas, um, somewhat by accident and uh, perhaps leading of the Holy Spirit, we'll believe, um, we are sort of on this theme of the will of God. When I was out for my kidney surgery, Pastor Everett preached a message out of 1 Peter on the will of God. And then last week, as we began our December series on uh, Christmas stories and revisiting some of the stories of Christmas. We were in Luke chapter 1 and that wonderful story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and our concept there was that Zechariah was surprised by the plan of God. He totally was really blindsided by what God had in store for him in the birth of John the Baptist. You'll recall that he, he got a little bit sassy with the king and he doubted he ended up being disciplined by his speech being removed uh, and through the duration of, of the time when, until John the Baptist was born, and then he got his speech back. It's kind of interesting that this week, as we turn to Matthew chapter 1, not Luke chapter 1, but Matthew chapter 1, Luke 1 is the story of Zechariah, Elizabeth, being surprised by the plan of God. We want to look in Matthew chapter 1, and this remarkable young man named Joseph and the model that he presents of being surrendered to the will of God. There's a lot of parallels here in these stories. Both are about men who are going to experience pregnant wives and unusual births. Both are about men who are hearing from angels. Both are about men who have complete surprise to the plan of God... The distinction of Joseph, though, is that he immediately surrenders to the will of God 
we have some important lessons here. If you're in Matthew chapter 1, let's just read our text. We're going to look at this familiar, one of the most familiar of all of the Christmas stories. We're going to see in Joseph a man surrendered to the will of God, and we want to learn some lessons. We're going to read the text in a minute. If you have your notes handy, you'll notice that we're following uh, a similar template throughout these stories of Christmas. We're going to review the story, and then we're going to draw some life lessons from the story. Let's read our text together, Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But he considered these things, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As I referenced, it is a a very familiar portion of all of our Christmas stories in God's word given to us. What a remarkable man this Joseph was. And I want you to see as we begin looking at our outline this morning, if you're taking notes, I want you to see that as soon as we're introduced to the concept by the writer that this is an account of the birth of Jesus Christ, that it immediately gives us some snippets of information. And we see right away that as this took place, it took place in this way, that his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. If you just stop right there, we see right away that Joseph was a man with a plan. And the key word here is anticipation. Here's a man. We know that he was a carpenter. We know from historical context and cultural context that he was probably well into his 20s or mid-20s anyway. Mary was younger in her teens, no doubt. Well, this was a time when it was time. He had a home. He had built a home. He had a job. He was ready to take a wife. He was ready to move on with the rest of his life. And, And so Joseph, no doubt, was filled with anticipation. We don't really know a lot about Joseph. We know that he's a key player in the oversight of this initial birth and and the growing up childhood years of our Lord Jesus and his humanity. I mean, go figure. Who Who could ever guess that God would choose to gestate a baby in the womb of a mother? Having a stepfather, he was all God. He it had to interrupt the normal the norms, because if it was normal, it would be a normal human. It wasn't a, Jesus was not a normal human. He was all God. He didn't have an earthly father. He was all human. He had an earthly mother. It's a mystery, isn't it? This dynamic of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ wed together in its completeness. We know that Jesus was a carpenter. So we know that in his youth... And in his humanity, imagine this. Joseph taught Jesus how to use tools. 
We taught them how to size up a board or lumber and know how to use it and how to, how to join wood and how to make a strong product, maybe how to build homes. I don't know, but isn't it interesting that Joseph taught the creator of the universe how to create? Our Lord limited himself. He limited the usage of some of his parts of his deity. And so Joseph was hands-on with the Lord Jesus. We know that, that he overshadowed and protected Mary. He's the one who heard from, he, we're going to see as we read in our story, he heard from an angel. We know that later in a dream, God's going to speak to him. He's going to protect his young family. He's going to move them to Egypt. He's going to move them back from Egypt. He's going to establish a home with them. We know that age 12, as Mary and Joseph and, and their connected family and friends went to the temple, they lost track of Jesus and, and they finally found him and they scolded Jesus. And that's when Jesus said, well, I must be about my father's business. We know that Joseph is still in the story there, but then, then he just drops out of sight. It's over. When we fast forward to the cross and we see our Lord Jesus on the cross where he hung there for our sin, one of the last things he said before he completed God's plan and said, it is finished, and the, the, the plan of God's salvation was done. Satisfaction was met. He was a sufficient sacrifice. And he could say, it is over. I have paid the price. It is done. It is finished. Right before he died, yielded himself over to death. He looks down and he sees Mary with John standing next to her. And what does he say? He says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Take care of my mother. Joseph is already gone at this time. We, we can only assume that Joseph somehow passed away. We don't know. He was no longer in the family at that point, and he was, we assume, had passed away. So here's Joseph. He's young, he's strong, he's active, he's got a plan, he's filled with anticipation. It says in the passage that he was betrothed. Look what it says. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that's a stronger word than our present-day concept of engagement. You need to know that in this culture, when they betrothed to Mary, that an arrangement had been made, a, a dowry had been paid. Joseph had dealt with her father. He knew that Mary was to be his wife. This was indeed a legal arrangement. In fact, they were de facto husband and wife. It even says in verse 19, and her husband Joseph. As he considers the new information that comes along, he's going to consider divorcing her. So this is much stronger than the word engagement or my fiance. It seems, as a matter of fact, outside of the church in our culture, the word fiance has turned into a new meaning. It, it means we're living together, but we're not married. You know, this is my fiance for 10 years. What is that? So this is even stronger than that. They were betrothed. They were committed. This was a legal binding arrangement. And we recognize immediately in the story, as Matthew records it, that though Joseph is filled with anticipation at this point, there is a sudden and dramatic complication. It is, number one, completely unexpected. And secondly, it is completely unacceptable. Notice what the text says. So before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting how modest the Bible is? And we know exactly what it's saying, don't we? 
before they came together, before there was a physical consummation of this relationship, he had not been with her as a man with his wife. So clearly the writer makes clear that Mary is pregnant. He makes it clear right away that it is by the Holy Spirit. So just like Zechariah, as he stood before the holy place on his day of priestly service that was such a good day for him, he becomes he's completely blindsided by the word from the angel. So Joseph is completely blindsided. It's not exactly clear how he found out the information to begin with. Was it just the angel that told him? Had Mary already told him? We just know that immediately when he heard the news, I take it was later that the angel talked to him after he already knew the information because he already had started a plan in motion to put her away and to divorce her quietly. Did Mary herself come and say to Joseph, you need to know this? What We don't know. We just know that it was unexpected. We also know that it was unacceptable. And This is a deal breaker. This is it. It's before they came together. You see, this, contra- this idea of betrothal of a man and his wife and then this waiting period before he would bring her into his home had much to do with this whole reality right here. It was to show that she was indeed a virgin and that they had not been together before they were engaged and, and before they were married. And it was all part of their ceremony. And so we see right away in verse 19 that Joseph must have indeed entered into a time of personal and spiritual frustration. Just a time of frustration. Look what it says. And, so, and Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. So he's got to think about this. He's thinking about their relationship. He resolved, the word is resolved, to divorce her quietly. See, he could have done this thing very publicly, and, there, and by doing that, he would have exonerated his own reputation. He said, look, I didn't have anything to do with it. He goes to the courts, they deal it, they proclaim him a just and righteous man, and they take care of her, and she is shamed publicly. Uh, we have to believe that he had some sense of of at least a sense of kindness, if not already a romantic love. It's hard to imagine he wouldn't have had some kind of romantic love already for Mary. I don't think that they dated in the way that we do and hold hands and walk around town and drink milkshakes at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Out of the same straw. (laughs) Not at the same time. He's a just man. He's unwilling to put her to shame. He resolves to divorce her quietly. And then it says in verse 20, but as he considered. So I take it that he's about his work. He's working over his workbench. He's he's filling orders. He's working with his tools and his mind is churning. You can picture him sitting on on his stand and bench and he's working his draw knife, perhaps smoothing an ox yoke. And his mind is elsewhere, and he's just, I don't know what to make of this. What do I do? He's working it over. Clearly, this has to be a time of personal, even spiritual frustration. But then in verse 20, he goes home, evidently exhausted from the emotional uh, dealings in his mind, and he lies down, and he goes to sleep. and, And it says that as he considered these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
So immediately he has a limited yet adequate information, doesn't he? Uh, letter D, limited yet adequate information. So it's confusing because right away the, the angel says to him, what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. What is that all about? There's no precedent here. And so he's got to process this thing. And so it's confusing. On the other hand, it appears that at some level it must be a comforting message because I'm at least taking the position that Joseph is relieved because he's completely frustrated and in consternation over what to do about this separation and how to proceed with it and put her away privately and what should he do. And the angel immediately says, I want you to marry her. And so it immediately relieves him of that decision-making process. And I have to say, he says, good, yes. So he gets to marry her, but this is still confusing information. So the angel doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, um, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Immediately the message began to turn in his head, I think, and it's dramatic and it's life impacting in its implication. Dramatic and life impacting in its implication. You see, Joseph would have known that Israel was longing for and looking for a promised Messiah. He would have known what we call our Old Testament today. He would have read Moses and the prophets. He would have grown up hearing them read on a regular basis. He would have memorized portions. He would have known the prophets. He would have known that there was an an anticipation of Messiah to come. And then he says, the angel says to him, you're going to have a boy. Now, that's pretty interesting information at a time when there's not imaging. I mean, that's a relatively new thing when you can can have a, I don't know what they call them, MRI, echocardiogram, whatever it is, ultrasound. You have an ultrasound. And and you can see the gender. Joseph, you're going to have a boy. Okay, okay. And you're going to name him Jesus. So we got a gender reveal going on here. And we got the name on the same day. And we're only a day or two into this thing. So we've got like eight months, three weeks, and six more days. And you know the gender and you know the name. He says his son will be Jesus. Yahshua in Hebrew. The idea, literally it means The Lord is salvation. And so you have to believe that Joseph immediately began to connect with the message of the angel with the truths and promises of the Old Testament. We have been waiting for the Lord to save us. Now, Joshua would have been a common name, but he goes on to say then, and this is a fulfillment of what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, once again, like with Zechariah, The angel quotes from Isaiah, this time chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And the writer edits and tells us, in my Bible in parentheses, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So he's going to be Jesus. This is the Lord's salvation for Israel, Joseph. And not only that, this is going to be God in the flesh. That's why, and Joseph must have, almost immediately began at some level to connect the dots in his mind so that he recognized, okay, I'm beginning to understand why this pregnancy is of the Holy Spirit and not of a man, and I can accept that. And there's nothing in the passage 
that leads us to believe that Joseph did anything other than believe immediately by faith and therefore he surrenders himself to the will of God as a beautiful model of someone who hears the word and then does the word. And so there he is. This life impacting in its ramifications. His son will be Jesus. That means the Lord is our salvation. His son will be Emmanuel. That means God with us. Messiah is come. And then the passage ends with 24 and 25. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did. That's two good words right there, isn't it, for Joseph? So when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. You see, there was no talk back. There was no questioning. It was, and he did. He heard, and he did. He believed. And he took his wife, and he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, exactly as the angel told him. And so there was nothing about Joseph other than careful, obedient application of what he knew to do careful, obedient application of the word of God in his life. Well, there's the story, and I know that you know that you already know the story, and as is our pattern on our Christmas stories here, we want to move from the story details to to fitting this into our life, and I've chosen to follow the direction here of this idea of Joseph being surrendered to the will of God, and it seems to me that one of the lessons that come out of it right away is this, letter A, that the word of God is always sufficient for the people of God. The word of God is always sufficient for the people of God. Now think with me back through time. We have Adam and Eve in the garden, and there they are, and how do they know anything? They know, and we know from implication in the passage, that it must have been the norm for God to come and walk with them in the cool of the evening. That's how they knew what to do. God told them. And you remember that when, when one evening, when God comes to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, he can't find them. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And Adam's hiding behind a tree. And, and God says, why are you hiding? And Adam says, because I'm naked. And how did he say, how do you know you're naked? Did you eat from the tree? And notice what Adam didn't say. What he did say was bad enough. It was this woman you gave me. But he doesn't say, hey, I didn't know. He didn't say, I didn't know. He didn't even say, I forgot. You would think most husbands would say, I forgot. No, he immediately says, yes, I I did, but this woman... And you see, God gave Adam all the information he needed to be a success. Adam could not stand before God and say, I didn't know, you didn't tell me. Same thing as we move to Noah in Genesis 6. So through every... You study scripture through every epoch, through every every corridor, hallway of time where God's people are, God reveals to them exactly what they need to know at that time. So he tells Noah, it's going to rain, build a boat. Noah got the message. Noah understood. Noah didn't miss anything, even how big to build it. God told him exactly what he needed to know. Moses knew exactly what to do to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Before that, Abraham knew exactly what God expected of him. God always gives sufficient information to his people. So you can you cannot look at God and say, I didn't know. Which leads us to our second thought. The will of God is always subject to the word of God. The will of God is always subject 
to the Word of God. And so as we think through the corridors of time or these periods of time past, God always revealed exactly what he wanted revealed at the right time. And we are a privileged people because we have this sufficient, complete word here. Nothing is missing. Everything we need to know is here. And so listen, this isn't real. You understood this. These don't work. The PR356 headset to kill you God's word. This is an illustration Okay, David, this is an illustration. It doesn't work. And why, why is it an illustration? It's because you don't need that. You say, well, Pastor Van, you don't understand. I go downtown. I got to buy a truck. It's, I don't know whether to buy an F-150, F-250, a bigger before-market dualies, after-market dualies, extended cab, leather seats. Does it need to be blue? Should it be white? Should it be red? I just don't know what to do. I, I don't know. Should I do this kind of financing? Should I turn in my IRA and get some money and do this? What should I do? Well, for one thing, God doesn't care a hoot what color your truck is. And the other thing is, God has told you everything you need to know in this book. He has revealed all that you need to know. You could write down in your notes 2 Peter chapter 1. And you say, well, wait a minute. I didn't know that the Bible had anything about pickup trucks in it. I didn't know that the Bible talked about universities and colleges and where I'm supposed to go. I don't know what to do. I need the headset. No, you don't. You see, there will never, you will never, ever, ever be able to do this. Just like Adam, just like Noah, just like Moses, just like Abraham. You will never, ever be able to do this. You will not stand before the Lord someday and he will look at you and say, why didn't you do my will? And you'll say, I didn't know, I didn't know. You didn't tell me what to do. What do you mean I didn't tell you? You see, God's word is sufficient, and the servant of God is always surrendered to the word of God to find the will of God. Our problem is we don't read the book. We're not paying attention to the information that is absolutely satisfactory. So here's how it is. All of the patriarchs, they're written down for our learning. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that all the history of Israel is recorded for your learning. They have lived. They have made mistakes. You're to read that. You're to study it. You're to understand it. We have all of the wisdom of Solomon written down in Proverbs. You need to make a decision about a truck. You can probably find all the answers you need in Proverbs. We have David and the Psalms and his relationship with God and and how to commune with God. We have the life and the model and the, and the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ clearly recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels. We have the very specific instruction to the churches. The Apostle Paul goes on and on in detail how to live the Christian life. And you say, but yeah, but I didn't, they didn't tell me who to marry. Nobody said obey your mom and dad. Children, obey your parents. It said in 1 Corinthians Bad company corrupts good morals. He said in 1 Thessalonians 4, learn to control your body, not in passionate lust like the heathen. So everything you need to know, you have. You have all of the information right here. It's here. And so therefore, every decision you need to make springs out of that. And if God didn't tell you in the book and he didn't say it specifically, and there's not wisdom principles or practical applications of the word of God, then I take it it's like the color of the truck. He just doesn't care. You get to decide. 
But we get, we get all kinds of funny things in our head, like the kid who was a 19-year-old college sophomore, and he wanted a car really badly. And so he's thinking about this car, and he falls asleep at night, and he dreams, and everything in the dream was yellow. It was a weird dream. You know how dreams are. And everything in the dream was yellow, and then there was something about a car in the dream, and it was yellow. So he wakes up in the morning, he goes down to the used car lot, and he's looking around, and right in the middle of the car lot is a yellow car. I mean yellow. Somebody painted the wheels yellow, the fabric was yellow, the dashboard was yellow, the steering wheel was yellow, the paint all it was yellow. And so sight on, you're just right there immediately doesn't even start it he buys it and it turns out it was a lemon (laughs) (laughs) but we play all kinds of games don't we well i i dreamed this and i looked at this like i read a story where a lady was going to go on a trip she really wanted to go on a trip to the holy land and she had a brochure and she was looking at the brochure and in the brochure she understood that they were flying on a 747 and she went to bed thinking about it and praying about it. Lord, is it your will for me to go to Israel or not? And, and so she, when she woke up, she happened to wake up with a start in the morning. And it was 747 on her digital clock. And so she said, that's it. It's God's will for me to go to Israel. <laughs> How do we put that stuff together? You see, we, we approach it wrongly. God has given us all the information we need to accomplish his will and purpose and to be a success. He's told us. So our job is to bring our will in subjection to the word of God. And out of that springs the decision-making of life that will be pleasing unto God. Thirdly, the servant of God is always subject to the word of God. I've already kind of gotten onto that. The servant of God is always subject to the word of God. But I want to show you how we see this reflected in Joseph And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife. Those two words, he did, are good, aren't they? You know, we see, introducing in the passage, we see that Joseph is described as a just man. If you let your eyes go down into the text box on your notes, I, I borrowed a line from William Hendrickson out of his New Testament commentary that I enjoy and appreciate very much and depend on heavily. That to say that Joseph was a just man, William Hendrickson says that means he was a man of principle, one who with his whole heart wanted to live in accordance with the will of God. That's a good man. I put that text box on there, by the way, for two groups of people. The first group of people people is everybody in the audience who's a man or a boy. All of you men, Joseph provides a wonderful model of the kind of man we want to be. And I just listed a couple of his characteristics, his character traits, and his moral framework. The second group of people that I put it in there for are all the unmarried girls here. There's your little list. Cut it out. Put it in your Bible. And then you walk around. You don't need a headset. You got the word of God telling you this is the kind of man that makes a good husband And you check off your checklist here based upon the model that Joseph presents. And if you bring somebody home who's short on that list, you take my word for it, you drop them like a hot potato. There it is, a little bit of help for you. But notice in the text, it says, he, when he woke from sleep, he did. So the first thing we know that he did, number one, was He heard. We hear the word, right? Number one, hear. Number two, obey. Number three, do. And I wrote, 
exercise self-control for number three. But you got to hear the word, and when you hear the word, what do you do? You obey the word, and when you obey the word, you have to restrain yourself from climbing over God's fences so that you maintain an obedience that takes self-control to do the word of God. I want you to notice, I thought it was interesting, and it says in verse 25, but he knew her not until she had given birth to her son, to a son. You see, Joseph had to exercise self-control in bringing Mary into his home and waiting to fulfill the plan of God. And so I wrote in the notes, personal godly discipline. Personal godly discipline is one of the keys to protecting the unfolding will of God in my life. And isn't that true? God has given us everything we need to know in his word. And that word is where we are become subject to the will of God through the word of God and the servant of God surrenders to the word of God to find the will of God. And as I'm walking along through life, what do I have to do? I have to restrain myself. I have to limit myself. I have to deny myself. I have to yield myself over to spirit control and to God's will so that I don't climb over fences that are out of the will of God. And self-control and discipline are part of the key to me maintaining a biblical obedience. Otherwise, I'm going to make my own decisions and I'm going to make foolish choices. So some of you filled in the last line there, personal godly discipline, and you think, wow, we're going to get a head start on the line at Ruby's. But that's not true. <laughs> so about 5 o'clock this morning, I'm sitting in my chair drinking my coffee, and I'm reviewing my notes, and the notes were all printed, and, and I just I thought the message wasn't done. So if you would, will you flip your page over? i got five more points for you. And don't groan. Let me tell you what I think the Lord burdened my heart with, just in my own thinking and as the shepherd of the flock. It occurred to me that, okay, we've got this model in Joseph as a man who is surrendered to the will of God. And we see that he got up and he did in obedience. And God blessed him for it. But through the course of the morning in our three services, how many people are going to be here who have to say, Pastor Van, um, I am out of the will of God. I had a a young man tell me that this week. He's in his mid-30s. He could tell me exactly when he got saved, and he said, but I'm not in the will of God. I, I am backslidden. I am outside the will of God. So what do you do? What do you do if, if you've made decisions and choices and you, you haven't paid attention to the information. And so you've made choices now that have life consequences. And here we are heading down the road of life. And what am I going to do? And, and so on the back, I want you to title this, what if, dot, dot, dot. What if? What if I'm outside the will of God? What do I do today? How do I adjust my life now? Is my life over? Is it a waste? What do I do? The first thing that you need to do, number one, is confess and forsake. Confess and forsake. This is Proverbs 28, 13. It says this, He who conceals his sin does not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Okay, so you've made decisions. You've made choices. You have life consequence that's outside the information given to us. 
You are not in the will of God. You can look back and say, I know I'm not on the path that I'm supposed to be on. Then the first thing you better do is confess and forsake. Because why would you acknowledge that you're not where you want, where God wants you to be and do nothing about it? Don't you long for the blessing of God? You say, oh, Pastor Van, it's too late. I've messed up. No, it's not. You begin by confessing and forsaking. Secondly, you remove and rebuild. You remove and rebuild. You remove anything that can be dealt with. Hebrews 12.1 says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. So I'm living my life. I recognize I've made bad choices. I'm moving down through life. All right, it's a little bit the concept here. If you're going to get out of a ditch, you better stop digging. And the first thing then that you do is, okay, if I am outside of God's will, what is it that I've done? Have I bought a big truck that I don't need? Then sell the truck. Maybe, maybe the decision that you made outside of the will of God is sitting next to you. It's your husband. What do you do with that? That's what I mean. You remove and rebuild, but you only remove what you can remove. You say, we got this house. We can't afford this house. It's causing all kinds of problems. Then get rid of the house. So decisions that are reversible and relationships that are mendable. We we we. Remove and rebuild everything we can. Number one, we start with decisions that are reversible. If you can get out of that decision that was out of God's will, then get out of it. But you can't do that with all decisions. It's not God's will for you to get rid of your husband or your wife. It might be God's will for you to quit your job. It might be God's will for you to figure out some other way to get out of debt than what you're in debt. relationships that are mendable you say well pastor van a lot of that stuff happened a long time ago and time heals time does not heal time just allows things to fester and rot come to a head or atrophy and get stiff and dead and then you're dragging corpses around you got to deal with it you got to drive up that guy's driveway and you got to tell him you sinned against him and you got to ask for his forgiveness and you got to remove and rebuild everything that you can. Thirdly, you have to stop blame shifting. You have to stop blame shifting. You say, Pastor Van, you don't know what that guy did to me. You don't know how much they hurt me. You don't know how they deceived me and lied to me. I know, but, but you can't do anything about other people. You can only do something about you. And so... By focusing on other people, you only breed bitterness, and bitterness will ruin your life. And so instead, stop blame shifting and take any responsibility you can on yourself. Anything that was your responsibility, you take it, and you deal with it before the Lord. So we confess and we forsake, we remove and rebuild, we stop blame shifting, and now's the time, we're number four, where we go vertical. We go vertical. So I got to quit focusing on the people around me, and I've got to now focus on God. And now my job, no matter how much I've messed up outside the will of God all this time, my job from today on and the will of God for my life starts brand new right now. That's a pretty good thought, isn't it? And I'm going vertical. 
And I am going to become the person that God wants me to be, the man or woman, the boy or girl God wants me to be. That's who I'm going to be. Whether I get my wife back or not, I am going to be this man. Whether I ever get reappointed to this position where I lost because of my stupidity, doesn't matter. I am now going to be the man that God wants me to be. And God has a way of taking the ash heap of my life and out of that making something that he can use. That's grace. That's mercy. I'm vertical all the way. I become a disciple. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm in the book. I'm getting the information now that I have mocked or ignored or just been bored with all my life. Fifthly, you got to get help. You got to get help. You need a mentor. You need someone to disciple you and mentor you. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, I was working with this kid. He was getting old enough to know better, like 17 or something. He's a big, strong guy. And you couldn't make up all the dumb decisions this boy made. I mean, I mean, this boy couldn't get up in the morning, brush his teeth, and get on the bus and go to school without making 10 bad decisions. And he was just getting in trouble all the time, and he's getting old enough where they're going to lock him up in jail if you don't watch it. And I was working with him, and I was with a guy who was a good guy with him, who he was good friends with, and in fact, was, he lived nearby, and he knew him very well. And I didn't know what to tell this guy. So here I just said, listen to me. Listen. You are just messing up everything about your whole life. I want you to listen to me. I want you to do it. If you do what I say right now, your life will turn around immediately and you'll be a success. Oh, yeah, Pastor Man, what do you want? I said, see this guy right here? Yeah. I said, don't do anything. Don't do anything in your life unless he would do it. So, so if you don't know what to do, you run over and you say, what should I do now? And he says, eat supper, then sit down and eat supper. What do I do after supper? Put wood in the stove. Put wood in the stove. What do I do after? Put wood in the stove. Do your homework. Then do your homework. Read the paper, whatever. Stop messing up. Just do what this guy does, and you'll be a success. You need that kind of person in your life. You say, well, I, I mean, that, that's a little much. See, until you're broken and humble and willing to say, I, I, you got to have help. Sixth, it's time to look forward, not backward. you got to stop looking backward you got to look forward that's why we've run to the cross we've laid down our sin we've become right with god you look forward not backward and then seven after that's all done you have to just wait psalm 37 psalm 37 you have to wait on the lord because he's got to deal with all kinds of things in you he's got to grow you he's got to change your way of thinking you got to change your behavior. You've got a pattern going on for years. Now you got to change that pattern. So this is what this looks like, right? Okay, so you're 16 years old, and you're on the, in the river of life in your canoe, and you're really going to make it happen, and you're 16, but then you have a problem. You turn 19, and you're a college sophomore, and all of a sudden you start making all kinds of bad decisions. Next thing you know, you're 20, you're 21. You've made all kinds of decisions. Now you're married to some of those bad decisions. You've got debt. You've made bad choices. You quit a job you should have kept and you took a job you shouldn't have had and it fall apart and now your kids are this and you did this and next thing you know, you got this addiction and, and you got all this stuff going on. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You cannot, you cannot go back and, and start over. You can't do it. The other thing you cannot say is I didn't have enough information because you had all the information you needed. So what do you do? You go, you've zigged and you've zagged and here you are. And so you do the list. You confess and forsake. You remove and rebuild. You stop blame shifting. 
You go vertical and you become a disciple of Jesus Christ like never before. You get a mentor, you get help, you get somebody that'll hold your hand and walk you through it. You look forward, not backward, and now you're going to wait on the Lord because you can't change things in your... In, and now you know what happens? All of this time outside of the will of God as you look forward, not backward, becomes part of your story. It becomes something that God begins to use to impact the church and to help other people. You can't undo it in whatever time you have left. You look forward and we're looking forward to a warm welcome into the presence of our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's it. So Joseph is a wonderful model. It's a wonderful model of of a guy who heard the word of God, even though it was limited information, it was sufficient, and he immediately did and put into practice exactly what he was supposed to do. He disciplined himself unto godliness in all of the process, and God used him exactly the way he wanted him because he was surrendered to the will of God. Yes, he was absolutely surprised by the plan of God, but he was surrendered to the will of God. So today is a day to begin the rest of your life. Will you stand with me and we'll close in prayer, please? With our heads bowed, you need to just realize a couple things here. You need to realize you can't do this in your own strength. If you're not a born-again Christian, you haven't been to the cross and laid down your sinfulness and accepted Christ as Savior from your sin. That's where it starts. It starts at the foot of the cross today. And you admit your sinfulness and you believe that Jesus is the Christ and he was God in the flesh. He carried your sin to the cross and your faith in his act is what saves you. And it begins transformation. And you say, Pastor Van, I know that, but a long time ago I ignored who I was in Christ. I climbed the fences I lived outside the corral of God's will. Well, today's the day then that you tell the Lord, I confess and forsake. Will you help me begin now to remove and rebuild? Help me to define reality and stop the bitterness and the blame shifting. Help me to go vertical and to engage with the information that I have in your book and learn who you are and learn who I am. And then you begin to do a whole new work. And then your decision-making will be right and correct. So I don't know where you are. You need to deal with the Lord wherever you are this morning in that process. Perhaps some of you have not really strayed far. You've basically been able to walk in a life of obedience, but you've been ignoring the information. It's time to renew your commitment to knowing the revealed will of God through his word. And as we do that, the decision-making processes of life will become much simpler. And so, Father, help us, help rebuild us, show us what to do, forgive us for the ways we have often ignored clear revelation and show us how to renew our minds and our hearts before you that we would live out your good and pleasing and perfect will. I ask this in